Welcome to the Lex City Church Podcast. To learn more about the ministries of Lex City, please visit LexCity.Church. You know, there's a story told of a, a man who lived in ancient times, a Hebrew man, and um, I think he must have been a time, time traveler because he had a Mind Lab 350 just like this in the story. And uh, every time as he would head back into the city, to do business, he would take his time and walk through different, different lands and different uh, fields in a time. And on this one day, he decided he had a little more time, so he went to a different uh, block of land that he'd never walked through. And as he's walking through, he does what he typically does. He's got his little Mind Lab 350 checking out, and his hopes are maybe he'll find some scrap metal. Maybe if it's a good day, he'll find a button, and that will be a great one. And as he's going through on this day in this field, there's, it's a beautiful field. There's a stream that runs alongside, and there's this huge big boulder, and he's like, man, this, this is the place to find a button. And so as he heads on there, you can imagine, with kind of expectations, all of a sudden as he's going, he begins to hear what he's been looking to hear this whole time. His heart begins to race a little bit quicker. He gets excited. What could possibly be here? So he, he hops down, digs into his thing, and pulls out this, this box, dusts it off, opens the lid, and you can imagine what he finds. He finds a golden coin. Now he becomes excited. It's not just one coin. It's multiple coins. And he quickly begins to realize, listen, this is more money than I've ever seen in my life. This will change not only my life, but this will change generations to come. But because he's an honorable man, he knows what the law says. The law says you can't take anything from land that you do not own. So as hard as it was, he puts the coin back into the box and buries the box a little bit deeper and heads on his way into town that night. Now that night he's sitting in bed and his mind just can't keep from racing, like keeps thinking about this treasure that he has just found. This is, changes everything, he thinks. What do I need to do? And his mind then says this, and I've got to figure out how to possess the land so I can possess the treasure that I know lies within the land. So he heads home and he tells his wife what he has found. And he says, listen, here's the deal. We're going to sell the farm. We're selling the house. We're selling all of the livestock. I'm even going to sell my time machine, mine lab 350 that nobody knows how to work. Right? We're selling it all because the treasure that I found is worth it. And from that moment on, he lives his life thinking solely about what he does and the actions he takes and how it impacts his ability to possess the treasure. Now, you hear that, song, that story, and that may be a familiar story to you. Why? Because... It's a parable that Jesus taught in the book of Matthew. Got your Bibles, you can turn there. If you go to phones, you can go to lexcity.info for that. But Matthew chapter 13, Jesus tells a story minus a time-traveling farmer uh, with a mine lab 350. And here's what Jesus says on the story. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has, and he buys that field. It's an awesome. What a great parable. I mean, it's the ultimate, uh, you know, it's the ultimate win the lottery kind of a story, right? The 
Modern day, the man goes to Speedway, and on his way into Speedway, uh, he finds a lottery ticket sitting on the sidewalk, picks up the lottery ticket, right? Scratches it off and wins a million dollars. Life is forever changed. But in context of Jesus' time, like so many parables, right? Parables, simple story that teaches a biblical truth. Cultural context adds even more depth to it than we read it today. So let me just kind of put it in that context that Jesus was teaching. Matthew chapter 13, right? There's no banks. These farmers and folks, there's no bank. There's no fingerprint identification safe they have hiding somewhere in the back room. Uh, the safest place to put your valuables in those days was simply what? To bury them and hide them somewhere on your land. And then when you needed something, you simply would go to that spot Undig that jar or box, take out what you need for the purchase when you go into town, rebury them, and put them back in the ground as they go. Now, the geographical context of Matthew chapter 13 plays into this parable. Where's he at? He's in Palestine right now, right? Palestine, a part of the world that has been from the very beginning for thousands of years, even today, finds itself in ongoing conflict. War after war has been fought there. And so families are hiding their treasures from one of the main reasons is for plundering armies who will come and invade the land that they wouldn't come in their house and steal everything that they had. The famous historian uh, Josephus wrote it this way. The gold and the silver and the rest of the most precious furniture which the Jews had and which the owners treasured they placed underground was done to withstand the fortunes of war. So in the context, if the landowner died or his land was plundered or if he was killed, then all of a sudden you would have these valuables that have been hidden in the ground, treasures that would be forgotten generation after generation. And on rare occasions, somebody would come by with a Mind Lab 350 and uncover a rare treasure that was found. Jesus says that's parable one. He says, let me, he says, let me give you another parable to make the point. Continue on in Matthew 13, verse 45. And again, the kingdom of heaven is like a great merchant in search of pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had, and he bought it. Similar concept. But in this one, in this parable, Jesus is foreshadowing, saying, I'm going to tell you about the ultimate price that's going to be paid for this treasure. It's foreshadowing shadowing of Jesus' death on the cross, that he might pay the price for our salvation. It's foreshadowing the deliverance of the nation of Israel. It's foreshadowing of the diary, the dowry that would be paid for the bride, for the church that Jesus would pay. So here's the cool part. We today sit as the church as a fulfillment of the parable that Jesus shared 2,000 years ago. The price would be paid for the pearl of great price. Ephesians chapter um, 5, verse 25, Jesus reminds us of this price that he paid, right? Husbands, you might have heard this before, love your wives. Why? As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That Jesus pays the ultimate price for his treasure, for the church. It's so important to be reminded, especially in North America in 2024, right? This is not my church. This is not your church. This is his church. 
And preachers always get themselves in the trouble when they forget the fact that they did not pay the price for the treasure of the bride of Christ. It's God's church. And our calling is simply to live in selfless surrender to the kingdom of God. That Christians, at the end of the day, right? At the end of the day, when we stand before God and give an account for our lives, the issue will simply be stewardship, if you're a follower of Jesus, on how you steward your time, your talent, and your treasure. That's our calling. The second intersection that makes this such a timely reminder for us is really the issue of our culture. Because there once was a time that church drove the culture, but in 2024, we live in a time where culture is now impacting the church at a greater level. In my lifetime, I've seen the swing of this cultural impact in the church. I thought all the way back when Pastor Zach and I were youth pastors many, many years ago, uh, church consisted of this, right? You may remember these days, Sunday morning, Sunday school, Sunday morning service, Sunday night service, and we were all in, so we had full choir Sunday night, right? Monday night outreach, Wednesday night prayer meetings, Wednesday night youth group, and we were in youth ministry, so it was fr Friday night events that we did with kids. I mean, this is what church looked like back in those days. It was all inclusive, it was all things. And the concern we used to share back then was this. How are we possibly ever going to impact our community and get to know our neighbors if we're at church all the time? 20 years later or 30 years later, that's not the question we're asking anymore. Latest research, this was fascinating me. Self-identified followers of Jesus were asked the question, how often do you attend church or do you attend church regularly, right? This isn't population. This is self-identified church-going folks like us. Uh, how often do you change, uh, attend church? Let me show you the map. This is what it is global, nationally. If you look on these, Kentucky, almost southern Bible Belt, 17, let this think in, 17% of professing evangelical church-going folks say, I only attend church regularly, 17%. If you live in Utah, it's 7%. Um, Mississippi wins the prize. 27% folks say, hey, I attend on a little bit more regular basis. 20 years ago, listen, 20 years ago, we were worried that we were spending so much time at church that we weren't having an impact in the world around us. But today, we can't get people out of the world and back into church in just 20 years. Cultural impact, and where we go? 2024, right? Let's just be honest. Church has become one of the options for what we do with our lives and on our, our weekends. And research shows in Kentucky, it's a pretty low option. If nothing else conflicts, conflicts, if I'm not too tired, if we didn't Netflix binge too late on Saturday, if all of those things, then we'll kind of get 17% of folks say, then we'll kind of make our way back to the thing. Here's what I want to remind you this morning. Jesus did not give his life for an option. He gave his life for the living expression of his love to the world. And yet in 2024, our culture, we find ourselves, and we all have friends, right, who are deconstructing their faith, 
who are walking away from church in record numbers, in community in record numbers. And I hear it all the time, right? I love God, but I hate the church. Can I just remind you that if you love the things that Jesus loves, you are going to love his bride. That doesn't mean there's not dysfunctional little C churches and dysfunctional preachers. It just says that the big C church is the pearl of great price. It's the bride of Christ. It's the treasure to which Jesus is teaching is worth giving your all for. It, if you wonder if that's true, can I just remind you, then you need to ask the 16 people who last Sunday gave their lives to Christ and said, man, this thing changed my life. You need to be reminded of the 150 people that gave their life to Christ in the context of here, of the marriages that have been restored and the faith journeys that have been strengthened and all of those things that's happened in the context and the seats that you and I get a chance to sit in and be a part of every week. I'm going to tell you that Jesus didn't die for an option. He died for a loving expression of who he is to the world, called what he says the bride of Christ, and he calls the church. And in a world and a time where everybody wants to bash the church, I just want to say to you that those who love Jesus, we've got to love what Jesus loves. And in all of its frailty, in all of its shortcomings, this is the expression of God to the world as he designed it to be. And yet we have allowed culture to move, take this acts to movement of God and turn it into a convenient consumerism, comfort-based Christianity. And while I'm on my hobby horse, let me just continue a little bit more. And my fear comes from the generation who follows us. See, parents, if we are not worthy and we're not willing and we don't think the church is worth giving everything and being all in, then let us not be surprised if the church is not important to us, it will become revert, worthless to our children. My fear is in our mediocrity, we have created a generation of indifference and we're losing a generation because they're watching us. And our actions are speaking louder than our words. And I just say to you, culture cannot drive our calling. And the wonderful point is, listen, this doesn't have to be your story. This doesn't have to be your legacy. You write your legacy. You determine your story. Your consistent example of what it means to be in selfless surrender to the kingdom of heaven can create a new legacy. I, I'm in church today. I've been doing this 34 years now. I've been doing this ministry thing. Why? Because I saw in the lives of my parents it mattered. So we folded bulletins every Sunday, and we came, and I hated it at times, and we came, and we set up chairs, right, and we served in children's ministry, and I did four- and five-year-olds with my mom for years and years and years, and I grew up understanding what it meant to be a Christian. It meant to surrender to something greater than yourself, and it had an impact in my life. Lex City, can I just say to us this morning, listen, we... We determine our culture. Are we going to be thermostats or are we going to be thermometers? Do we set the culture or are we simply a reflection of the culture that is around us? 
the beauty is, as a young, relatively young church, we, we just determine, who do you want to be? What do we want to be? How do we want to live differently than the world around us? It's a wonderful place to be. <laughs> Go back to Daniel's story. Uh, you know, in Daniel's, he has this dream, right? He has this dream to qualify once again for the Olympics. The percentage of human beings on earth who will have a chance to go to Paris this summer is remarkably small, and yet he understands this. He's all in. The treasure is this medal, this goal, right? And it's not something that he can reach on his own. This is something that the whole family's gotta be all in on. They've all gotta embrace what this means. Because it means for them, they're giving up jobs, right? They left here Lexington with heavy hearts and what the world God had for them next. They've changed friends. They've changed careers all for the sake of this treasure. And so just to give you a little bit of perspective, because if you are married or in a family context, this idea has to be something you do together. So here's a little bit of Gabrielle's story on what it means to be all in as an Olympic athlete's wife. Well, we're moving on now. I played softball at Prairie A&M and there was an Instagram page that was called like an unhyped athlete or something like that where they basically posted a whole bunch of women, women in sports and so somehow I ended up on the page. Anytime I spent time with God I just kind of like posted the verse or I would kind of go into detail about certain things that I would either learn from or understand. And so, yeah, he said that he loved what I was posting. He loved the encouragement that I was giving to the people that followed me. And then a few hours went by. He was like, I really enjoy your content. I really would like to get to know you. Um, you seem like a great person to get to know or something like that. Yeah. We've moved a lot. So I moved to Lexington and then from there, three months, four months later, we moved to Fort Worth. And then from Fort Worth, we were there for like six months and then we moved again here. And so it's been hard to kind of put things aside that I want to do. We're in a small town to where the industry I'm in, there's not a lot of, like there's not a lot of options for jobs. I had kept seeing like Proverbs 31, Proverbs 31. And so I actually finally read it and I was like, maybe I'm just supposed to be a supporting wife right now. Like maybe I'm supposed to just be all in supporting Daniel instead of like trying to figure out what I'm gonna do. Because I feel like if God has a plan and he has months and times and days and all these things lined up, then at some point a job will be there if it needs to be there. Accepting that has been kind of a weight off my shoulders um, just because it was very tough at first. Because I was like, I wanna work, I wanna work. And I didn't know anyone here, so I feel like work was going to be a way to kind of open up the people, like open up to friendships and open up to different relationships. But I think the training group this year has grown a lot. So kind of getting to know them through the, like, through the track world, but also like who they are individually has helped me kind of be a bit more extrovert. There was a point in time last year where I had, was doing the workouts for like two months. And I was like, I think this will help me understand what Daniel is going through. And so one of the times um, we had did like a super hard workout. Was, I think it was like the first week. We were heading home and I was like, the past few years, Daniel has been coming home this tired. 
and the food is not ready for lunch. Like, I was like, dang, like, I'm such a bad wife. Not, bad, not a bad wife, but just like, I've never thought of it from his point of view. And when I finally did the workout, I was like, dang, I'm so tired. I just want to like sit down, eat, and like just relax. I just kind of understood like, okay, this is what's needed of me. This is how I can best and fully support him. And yeah, that just kind of opened my eyes to a lot of other things. But I think that was the main point of like, wow, Daniel like really actually needs me to like be, you know, on my toes because how are you gonna give so much energy when you don't have any? And you know, for them, the, the dream is, right, the treasure is a gold medal this summer in Paris. A gold medal with a market value today of $790.34. Would you turn your life upside down for $790.34 and move all the way to another little small town to do these kind of workouts every day? Probably not. Jesus says, listen, the treasure I'm telling you about today the treasure is not dependent on the market value of gold. This treasure is worth more than anything that you currently possess and more than anything you ever will possess in the future. It's an eternal eternal treasure. Jesus teaches this, right? The real life is the next life. If you walk away with nothing today, can I be reminded on that eternal perspective that the real life is the next life. And if we could just, I I just wish we could get a glimpse of that truth. I kind of wish that when you gave your life to Christ, you would get a a 30-second little tour of heaven the Apostle Paul would walk you through, right? 30 little seconds of just a glimpse of what eternity would be like. Listen, we would never, ever have to worry about preaching on serving and on giving, on evangelism or anything. We would have this urgency that says, I have seen what the real life is all about. (laughs) And I'm willing to do whatever I need to here that I could experience in the fullness of what God has for us. There would be a joy. There would be an urgency about what we do. So this man gets a glimpse of the treasure. He opens the box. (laughs) And he sees the coins. And it changes everything. So how does he respond to just that little glimpse? Verse 44, right? The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which the man found and covered up. Then this is great. Then in his joy, he goes and he sells all that he has and he buys the field. He's motivated by great joy. This is an exciting thing. Joy. It doesn't seem like a sacrifice because he's making an investment into his future and the things that have come in our context, right? If you don't have an eternal perspective, then the things that I'm sharing with you have a totally different feel. They feel so overly sacrificial. They feel like an obligation. They feel like this is just a ritualistic spiritual box that I've got to check, right? The church talks about finances. It's just, uh, it's devoid of all joy. feels guilt-ridden where I've got to do these things, right? I just got to do it, check the box, and move on with my life. (laughs) But the man came, and he had a perspective, and it changed. Can you imagine this? He comes home, right? And the first thing he does is he tells his wife. And then they get on Facebook Marketplace, and they start selling things like crazy. And their neighbors are looking like, oh. 
Oh, this poor family. Things must have gone bad, right? They're peeking over the fence, and they're selling everything. Like, oh, they must be right. And he looks over the fence, and what does he see? He sees them skipping and jumping, and they're singing the song. And you heard a little bit. The song is this one, of course. Well, we're moving on. That's right. The seven of you remember the Jeffersons. Anybody here with me on? We're moving on up right to the east side. There's a joy because what? Thank you. That brings me way back too quickly. There's this joy. Why? Because they understand we're not selling this sacrificially. We're making an investment into a thing that is even greater, and it creates in him a sense of joy. It's not painful sacrifice. It's an investment into the things to come. And he has confidence in Jesus as I teach you these things because you just need to be reminded that you will be richly rewarded for the things that you do in my name. It's about the treasure. It's not about the sacrifice. You see it, which way you see that determines everything within your attitude and perspective. If it's all about the sacrifice, then it leads to this feeling again of dread, of guiltful giving, and you miss the treasure that's really hidden in the midst of it. Apostle Paul knew this, which he says, Philippians 3. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Paul understands that the real life is the life to come. Culture says, all there is to life is this life, so you've got to live for the moment, right? Culture says, it's about your time and your preferences and your resources. You are the treasure, right? So live your best life. So culture tells us over and over, and it's telling our children over and over. Today, as we close out, I want to remind you where it all starts. It starts with your calling as a Christ follower. And your calling is going to be in constant conflict with the culture around us. The the war that wages every day in decisions that we make is simply this. It's the war between instant gratification versus eternal investment. It's the war against personal satisfaction versus selfless service. It's the war against personal gain versus priority giving. And it's not just a physical war. It's a war that goes within our hearts, and it's a war within our minds, and it's a war within our very soul, right? Ephesians 6, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. The calling of your life will position you in a point of constant conflict with our culture. And what I say to you as followers of Jesus, this is the place we need to stay and rest where we are in conflict with the culture around us. And the biggest place that this cultural conflict takes place is within the heart. And Bible says so clearly over and over, the biggest place it manifests itself is in the issue of our treasures. That's why Jesus teaches on it. That's why Jesus says, I want you to understand this is the, the manifestation of the spiritual battle that's within your heart. This is how it fleshes out. 
And so I leave you with this thought this morning. God is not trying to take your treasure. He is trying to keep your treasure from being taken. Matthew 6, Jesus says this, right? Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust can destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp unto the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? For no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. It's a call to all in, right? To selfless surrender to the things of God. It's a call to be reminded again that the real life is the life to come. That I love the church because Jesus loves the church. And he calls it the pearl of great price. And when I lean into that, these things bring me joy, not obligation and guilt-ridden obligation that comes with that. Jesus says, can I remind you, can I remind us in 2024 that your calling trumps culture every single time. Let's pray together. Father, today we come before you with an attempt to refocus our hearts come to us trying to express the gratitude for you and the gratitude for your great love for us. The depths of your love are so wide and so deep, so long that I only can attempt to understand the vastness of who you are. And while my mind can't comprehend your greatness in entirety, my heart's desire is to follow your lead. Every step in every corner. I surrender to you my plans, no matter where they lead. And while I haven't always been so willing, I'm renewing my vows to you, Lord, <laughs> to be all in. I beg you to take me and use me only as you can, no matter the time or the place. And it will truly be my joy to say, your will and your way. Thank you for listening to the Lex City Church podcast. If you would like to support ministries of Lex City, visit lexcity.church/give. Please subscribe and follow us on social media at Lex City Church for more encouraging teachings and content.